Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this day that you have given us that we might worship and exalt you. Thank you for this day that you have given us life and breath and all things. We find these to be pleasant gifts from you. You have sustained our lives another day. You've granted us ministry opportunities, opportunity to worship. And it fits us well. We delight in it. Thank you. Thank you for the revelation of yourself in this word. Might we never treat it with commonness, but every time we open it, Might our hearts ring with joy that the Lord of the universe is about to speak to us. And might we find particular joy in that this morning as we think about the Lord speaking to us, not just in this day, about this day, but He is speaking to us about that day, the final day. In the final season on this earth, in which our Christ, as we have just sung, will be victorious. And we will reign with Him and no more be concerned with sin and sadness and death. But He will conquer all things. We look forward to that day. Might we have hope in it as we worship around Zechariah 14 this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many years ago, now I took my first trip to Israel. That trip, like many trips when you go to Israel, ended up in Jerusalem. The last, I think, three or four days we were in Jerusalem, first touring and then wandering the city on our own for a couple of days. And like many of the other visitors on that occasion, and if you were still to go today, you would find it to be largely the same. I was struck by the vast presence of military everywhere, in the markets, at the Wailing Wall, at the city gates, at all of the holy sites, policemen, military presence, and they weren't carrying pistols, my friends. They were carrying the big stuff. I don't know what it is, but it was big and it looked impressive. It just seemed like everywhere you turned, there was military presence. That you couldn't go more than half a block and see someone or turn around and see someone. And finally, after a couple of days of this, someone asked the tour guide about the presence of the military everywhere. And Decades since that trip have dimmed my memory of exactly what he said, but he said something like this. The military is our safety. Because we have an army, we are safe. No one can harm us. Even then, I thought about the attacks that had been taking place against Israel over the millennia. And what I knew that the Bible said about the coming days, and I knew he was wrong. They weren't safe. Israel was not safe. And the last week has demonstrated it again. 
that Israel has many enemies that want to see her destroyed. And Zechariah 14 tells us that that will not cease, that the world will continue in opposition against Israel. And at some point in the future, not just a few isolated nations like those who surround her borders right now, but that the entire world will gather together in one concerted effort to obliterate God's people from this world. It will be a final assault. And what we have seen in these days, this last week, will not compare to the horror of those days and that attack. Israel was not safe. Israel is not safe. But she will be. In that day, God will save his people, Israel, through his Messiah. He will come back and he will fight for his people, the fight that they are incapable of fighting on their own. And the nations will be vanquished. Verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's a great day coming. That day will reveal the culmination of God's plan to rule the earth. Every form of opposition against him will be put down and righteousness will reign unrelentingly and unceasingly. And as Zechariah reveals the glory and joy of that day, he culminates chapter 14 with one final reality of the Messiah's rule on the earth. We find it in verses 16 to 21 where it says that Christ the King will turn sinners into worshipers. And brothers and sisters, He will vanquish sin. There's a great day coming. God's salvation plan is not just to liberate sinners from the penalty of sin and wrath. His plan is also... To not just liberate them, but to turn them into worshipers of Him. Consider just one statement from Jesus, and there are many more than this, but consider just this one from John chapter 4. An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks To be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. God is seeking them and God is converting them so that they can worship him in spirit and truth. We are talking in this passage and Jesus is affirming the the reality of the spiritual victory of Christ He rules not just the nations, but He rules every realm as well. In this passage, I want us to see two aspects of Christ's spiritual victory. Two aspects 
of Christ's spiritual victory. He will turn sinners into worshipers. He will vanquish sin. That means he is victorious spiritually. Let us see how he will do that. Verses 16 to 19. See, first of all, that Christ the King will make worshipers from all people. He will make worshipers from all people. I think your note says of all people and prepositions make a difference. And after I had that printed, I thought that's not really what I want to say because not all people will become worshipers, but people from all people will become worshipers. So you can change that preposition from of to from and you'll make me happy. And I think honor the text better. As we come to verses 16 to 19, let's remind ourselves of what has already happened in chapter 14. Chapter 14 focuses on the return of Christ when he will set up his millennial rule at the end of the tribulation. In verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, we have all of the nations who are gathered against Israel in that day at the end of the tribulation in an attempt to vanquish Israel, to destroy Israel, to eradicate Israel from the earth. That's verses 1 through 2. In verses 3 through 8, we have Christ returning. And we have this marvelous statement in verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. In other words, God will do what only He can do in that day. And a glorious day it will be. And Christ will return and Christ's feet will physically touch the Mount of Olives and He will come back to this earth in the same way that He ascended in Acts chapter 1. He will assume His Davidic throne in verse 9 and in verses 10 and 11 we found the the nation and the land transformed and how God fixed, recreated, as it were, the land for the reign of Christ. And then verses 12 to 15, we have kind of a a snapshot looking backwards, um, looking back at the battle of Armageddon and how, how Christ will defeat the nations. In this section, in this final section, verses 16 through 19, we see Christ on his throne And we see his spiritual work for the people after the physical land has been restored to his rule. Christ will make worshipers from all people. And let us see in these verses the joy of worship in that day. We know from Romans chapter 11 that one day soon an entire generation of Israel will be spiritually saved. Well, Israel is God's chosen people and we love the nation of Israel because they belong to to God. We know that, that they are not yet all saved and just being an Israelite doesn't save. What saves is placing faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, for the removal of sin and for the hope of glory. The same thing that saves you and me saves the Israelites and they are not yet saved But Romans chapter 11 tells us that one day they will be saved. But we also know that not just will the nation of Israel be saved, but we know from the Abrahamic covenant way back in Genesis chapter 12 that the Gentiles will also be folded into the blessings that come to the nation of Israel. And what verse 16 unfolds for us is 
part of the salvation of the Gentiles in that day. So notice that Zechariah says it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went to get up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year throughout the millennial kingdom for that thousand years to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, honestly, when he says, when any who are left, coming out of verses 12 to 15, you got to wonder, well, just who is left? Because it just doesn't seem like there are going to be any who are left. He says in verse 3 that God is going to fight as when, as, as like only he can fight on the day of battle. And you think, well, there's nobody that can defeat God and God defeats everybody. And so you think, well, that's the vanquishing of the entire army or armies that are against him. And then you read verse 12 and all the people who are rotting, decaying, what would take normally centuries in a grave or at least decades in a grave happens instantaneously on that day of battle. And you think, well, nobody's going to survive that. And so you got to wonder, he gets to verse 16, who's left? All of the nations have gathered against Israel and they're all in Jerusalem. And, and God seems to have vanquished everybody who's left. It is possible that some of the military did survive and that some of them repented. It, the text doesn't explicitly say in chapter 14 that every soldier is put to death. But you read this text, you read Revelation 19, and it just seems really unlikely that any of the soldiers survive. I can't say that for a fact, but it just seems really unlikely. So I think what this text is talking about is that while all of the nations have gathered at Jerusalem, not every citizen of every nation was coming to Jerusalem to fight. They sent their armies. And so there were civilian non-combatants back in the nations who did not come to fight on that day of battle. battle. And I think that's what Zechariah is talking about here. There are some who are from the nations who will see what has happened at Jerusalem and see the victory of Christ and see the victory of the Lord of hosts and they will repent and they will go up. Whether it's combatants or non-combatants, what is significant is not who is left, but the fact that any are left. And it is a reminder of the grace of God and His desire for sinners to repent and to be saved. We see that in, in, in excuse me, in Second Peter chapter three. We also see that how uh, we see that in Second Peter three how God does not desire. Um, the, the wicked to perish or the ungodly to die, but is patient with all, desiring for all to come to repentance. We see that also in Ezekiel chapter 18, Ezekiel chapter 18, where he says this in verse 23, God speaking, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? I don't desire for the death of the wicked. I desire for the wicked to repent and to have an experienced life. He says something very similar in verse 27. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which, which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life. And I love that, God says. 
And the fact that even on that day, in the last day, that He is gracious and desires the salvation of the wicked is a sign of His magnificent grace. What will those who are on that day who are left do? They who were against Jerusalem will go back up to Jerusalem. There's irony. From year to year, repeatedly, this time, not to do war against Jerusalem, but to worship the king and to celebrate the Feast of Booths or the the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. In fact, we find this this practice restated both in verses 18 and 19, that, that they have been called to do this. This is what every follower of God should do. This is what every person on earth should do, that they should go to celebrate the Feast of Booze. And many of them would, most of them would practice it repeatedly year after year. Now the question is, well, what's the Feast of Booze? Well, you may remember from the story of the Exodus in Exodus 13 to 16 that the nation of Israel fled from Egypt after 400 years of captivity there and they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of the disobedience of the people to take the land, their failure to trust God. And all of those years they lived in tents. And after their removal from the wilderness and their entry into the land of Israel, God established Leviticus chapter 23 that five days after the Day of Atonement that they would celebrate for a week this feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. They would gather branches. They would gather clusters of leaves from beautiful trees. They would gather palm branches and they would make tents. And they would live in those temporary tents for a week. And all that week they wouldn't work, but they would offer burnt offerings along with grain offerings and drink offerings. And they would bring free will offerings. We find that in Leviticus chapter 23. And those offerings and that feasting was a time to remember God cared for us while we were in the wilderness during those years. Listen to what uh, what Moses says in Leviticus 23. I start in verse 41. You shall thus celebrate it, the Feast of Booths, as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. And it will be a perpetual statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall live in booths for seven days All the native born in Israel shall live in booths so that, there's the purpose, your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. It was a particular way for the nation to recognize their position before God and His provision and care for them, not only in the wilderness while they wandered, but their entry out of the wilderness into the land and His provision for them as the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I'm the Master. I'm the Sovereign. But it wasn't just a dutiful celebration. Notice this in verse 39 of that same chapter. 
On exactly the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered the crops of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days with a rest on the first day and a rest on the eighth day. And on the first day, you will take for yourselves foliage of beautiful trees and palm branches and boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days and celebrate it as a feast to the Lord these seven days of the year. It was it was a joyful celebration. We're celebrating. We're gathering. It's a remembrance and it's filled with joy. Well, that all makes sense looking back. But why is that going to be reinstituted at that time in the millennial kingdom? Well, there are a couple of reasons that that happened in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Listen to what Moses says in verse 14, 13 and 14. You shall celebrate the Feast of Booths seven days after you've gathered in from your threshing floor and your vine, wine vat. And you shall celebrate in your feast you and your son. Ah, now he's identifying who should worship. You and your son and your daughter and your male and female servants and the Levite and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your towns. He's inviting the Gentiles, the strangers, to worship with them. The masses of Gentiles that will convert to Christ and follow the Messiah in that day It is fitting for them to come to worship because they have long been invited to worship God and the Messiah in this way. It's fitting to reinstitute it because the Gentiles, while isolated individuals may have worshipped along the way, in that day there will be a mass of Gentiles to worship. And so it is appropriate to reinstitute it from that standpoint. It is also appropriate to reinstitute it for another reason. They are tabernacling, as it were, tenting, tent camping, uh, to remind themselves of what they did not have. In that day, it will be a reminder to them of what they do have. Listen to Revelation chapter 15. Excuse me, Revelation chapter 7, verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him night and day in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will tent underneath the tent of God. And they will hunger no longer nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. And in a similar way, John writes near the very end of Revelation in chapter 21, 
I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they will be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Feast of Booths is not just looking back now. It is now looking to the present that this is what we have perpetually. God is our king. He will not be removed from us. This verse also reinforces for us a repeated theme in this book. That God is not only preserving the nation of Israel, but he is going to save individuals from the nations. We saw this right at the beginning of our study of this book, chapter 2. Many nations, verse 11, will join themselves to the Lord in that day and they will become my people and then I will dwell in your midst. There's that idea of staying and living and tenting and tabernacling. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Zechariah chapter 8, in a similar way, it says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 20, It will yet be that the peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I also will go so that many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And what we have in chapter 14 is, is the full enactment of that that pleading in chapter 8, I want to go and I want to see and I want to worship. And on that day, they will worship. And the worship of God in that day will become joy for both Israel and the nations. And those who were opposed to Him will become lovers and worshipers of Him. Such good news. There's an antidote Or a warning that follows this. Note in verses 17 to 19. The danger of not worshiping in that day. While God will transform the hearts of many. The entirety of the nation of Israel will be saved on that day. And a great many from the nations will be saved. Not all will love the Lord God and worship Him. So notice what Zechariah says in verse 17. It will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king. In other words, there will be some who see the king, who observe the king, who see his righteous rule, who see his authority, And they reject him still and say, we don't want him. And they will not go. And in fact, that same little phrase, they will not go, is repeated two more times in verse 18 and then in verse 19. 
This is not just a, well, we forgot to go. This is volitional, intentional rebellion and a rejection. They do not want Christ. It's just astounding, isn't it? To see the risen, ascended, descended, ruling, reigning Christ To see how he has obliterated the nations in one day. And to say, not just, no thanks. But to say, I will not. It's just astounding. It it tells us, just in briefest and smallest of ways, of the darkness and the bitterness and the hatred that is in the heart of the unregenerate. Well, they don't get away with it. Verse 17. The ones who do that, who do not worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will not be rain on them. Verse 18. It will be the plague which with with which the Lord smites the nations. I think the plague there is not the plague of verses 12, uh, 12, 13, 14. I think it's. It's the plague of no rain. So rain is the lack of rain is seen again as as a plague, as a judgment. And then he says again in verse 19, this will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of the nations who do not go up to celebrate the feast of booths. There will not be rain. I will demonstrate to you my power and my authority and I will judge you. And this is what drought has always been. Drought has always been used by God or frequently been used by God as a discipline against Israel and against nations. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 and the Noah and the Mosaic covenant that Moses says in 28, 22 and following, if you disobey and if you're rebellious, speaking to the nation of Israel against the Lord, I'm going to send drought. It's a sign of judgment. And now it's expanded out. So the drought is not just against the nation of Israel, but it's against all of the nations. And even in the millennial kingdom, which is a time of blessing and a time of fruitfulness, God will discipline and judge sin. Oh, friends, he is astoundingly patient. With sin and sinners. All of us. Even if we are in Christ. Had a season. And many of us long seasons. Before we came to Christ. And we were rebellious against him. And we hated him. And he was patient. Though he could have justly judged us. For our first sin. Oh friends. He is astoundingly patient. But he will not overlook sin. And this judgment is a reminder that God hates all sin and takes all sin seriously, especially the greatest sin. What's the greatest sin? And you might be saying at this point, well, Terry, you know, all sin is equal. All sin will damn you to hell. And that's true. But some sins have greater implications. And some sins are more significant and greater than others. What's the greatest sin? What's the greatest commandment? 
to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. If that's the greatest commandment, then the greatest sin is not to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what is going on in verses 17 to 19 is that people are not loving the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength, and He will judge it. It will not be left undisciplined and unjudged. No one can perpetually defy God or His commandments without judgment. No one's power, no one's quote-unquote authority can compete with the limitless power and authority of God. He says that in verse 17, whichever of the families of the earth, in other words, wherever there's a family of the earth, wherever there's a family, wherever there's a nation, wherever there's a people group who don't go up to worship, they will be disciplined. In verse 18, notice that he narrows it down. Verse 17 is really broad, all the families of the earth. Verse 18, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations. Then again in verse 19, this will be the punishment for Egypt and for the nations. Why is Egypt particularly being singled out? It could be because at least twice Egypt is used in the Scriptures as being a representative for all the nations, and perhaps he is simply identifying them here as Egypt, like all of the nations... Or it could be that Egypt thought, ah, we're okay. We don't need rain. We've got the Nile River. And as long as we've got the Nile River, we have enough to irrigate our crops and we're just fine. We don't need God. And yet, even the Nile River is dependent on rain to feed it, to put it in flood stage, to enable the crops to be irrigated. And as a reminder that even with the vastness of the Nile River, Egypt too would be subject to God for her rebellion. God will not be ignored. He will be worshipped. I want you to notice something else about these verses, verses 17 to 19. Notice how God is characterized in these verses. Notice verse 16. They will go up from year to year to worship the king. We have seen the king either by implication or by title referenced throughout this book. We understand that the Messiah is returning. Jesus is coming and he will rule and reign as the king, as the Messiah. That's that's implied, if not stated, throughout this book. And then he identifies him also as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the main title for God in this book. It's used 20% of the uses of that title. The Lord of hosts in the Old Testament appear in this singular short book. And it's a reminder of the fact that God is, is the Lord of the armies, the one who is His ruler over every army, armies in heaven, on earth, under the earth. He rules them all. And here, He takes those two concepts, the kingship of God and the lordship over the armies of God, and He condenses them into one unique term. 
Only four other times in Scripture is that phrase, the King, the Lord of hosts, used. You will be familiar with one of those. Isaiah, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He is the King. He is the ruler. He is the sovereign. He is the one who is authoritative over all. And he is authoritative as King in controlling all of the armies. He controls every army in every place. He's reminding us of the vastness of God's absolute sovereign authority. He's not just sovereign over authorities, though. Notice how else God is characterized in these verses. Verse 17. If they don't go up and worship, there will be no rain. Now, he doesn't give a title for God there, but why is there no rain? It's not accidental. What's he saying? God is sovereign over rain. He controls the rain. He he is the one who is over the natural realm as well as the one who is over the realm of people and places. He is also, verses 18 and 19, the one who sends plagues, who smites, verse 18, and who punishes, verse 19. He is sovereign over the spiritual realm and has power and right to judge both sin and sinners. So he is sovereign over all people, He is sovereign over all creation, over the natural realm, and He is sovereign over everything in the supernatural realm. It's it's Zechariah's way of saying there's nothing that escapes His control. He has it all. And all of it is designed to worship Him. Says John MacArthur, God will ensure that the world engages in the worship it was created to express, giving all glory and honor to His Son. And if they don't, they will be judged. Oh, friends, these verses are a reminder to us of God's grace and ability to transform the worst of sinners into worshipers of the Messiah. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, give thanks that he has turned you from a sinner to a saint, as it were. But some of you who are believers also have family, friends, co-workers who you long for to know Christ. And some of you have not only been faithful to communicate that gospel to your friends and family, but you have been praying for them For months, for years, some of you have been praying for decades and there doesn't seem to be any fruit. And there's a temptation to say, God won't. Or even worse, God can't. Oh, brothers and sisters, He can. He will take from all the nations And He will redeem and He will save. Don't give up praying. 
Don't give up trusting. Don't give up, give up speaking the gospel. God is not only a missionary God. He is a missionary God who saves. And he can do that for your unbelieving family. Additionally, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I exhort you to repent of your sin and to believe in Jesus. If you do not believe, your sin will result in your condemnation before God and he will be unrelenting against you. Just just go back and read verses 12 to 15. I don't suggest you do it right before you fall asleep tonight because it's horrific. And that's only what he will do to the body. He will pour out his wrath against your soul for all eternity and he will be unrelenting. Oh, friend, don't die in a place where God is opposed to you. The good news for you is no matter what you have done, you can believe and you can be saved. Just turn back a page to chapter 12. What does God do in saving people? I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication a spirit of grace that is willing to save, of supplication that they want to be saved so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And then he delineates all those who mourn and weep and are saved. And my friend, that's a picture of what it means to be saved. It is to grieve over your sin to hate your sin and to go to the only one who can forgive you and cleanse you of your sin and ask him to save you and he will. If you have not repented, if you do not believe, I appeal to you. He can and he will. Would you repent and have faith? There's two aspects to Christ's spiritual worship, uh, Christ's spiritual victory in that day. The first is he will make worshipers from all people. Secondly, notice verses 20 and 21. Christ the king will consecrate all things. He will consecrate all things. The final two verses of this book and chapter expose God's sanctifying use of all things. In that day, again, a reference to the day of the millennial kingdom, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And you think, well, that's kind of cool. No, no, no. It's like cool beyond what you've thought about as cool. Why is that so particular? It's particular because horses are being sanctified. Horses are being made holy and made useful to God. And there's two things to remember as you think about the use of horses as the Bible thinks about them. One is that horses were viewed as something of a source of strength for the nation. So you read Psalm 20, Psalm 33. Nations find their, their strength, their victory in horses. And on that day, 
That which the nations have sought as their source of strength and victory will be subdued and underneath the authority of God. It's His. It belongs to Him. But not only that, they will be holy to the Lord. They will be dedicated to Him. They will not be the tools of the nations. They will be the tools of the Lord. They will be useful for Him. The second thing that is significant to remember about horses is that according to Leviticus 11, they're unclean. Because they chew the cud by which they would be clean, except they don't have a divided hoof. They have a single hoof. And that makes them unclean. You notice what the text says about these unclean animals? They are holy to the Lord. So they not only belong to the Lord, but they have become cleansed, as it were, and useful to him. When the readers of Zechariah's prophecy read this, they had to be absolutely stunned. Because the inscription, holy to the Lord, was not unusual to them. It was, in fact, something that they saw on a regular basis. Exodus chapter 28. Moses says, speaking about the garments of the priests, that they will wear bells on their garments. Their tinkling will be heard when the priest enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord so that he will not die. Exodus 28:36 You shall also make a plate of pure gold and you shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal holy to the Lord and you shall fasten it on a blue cord and it will be on the turban it shall be at the front of the turban every time the priest put on his garments to go into the Holy of Holies, he wore a turban that said, Holy to the Lord. Only he could wear it. And now there is cleansing that takes place such that even an unclean animal wears, as it were, priestly garments. Astoundingly dramatic transformation in that day. It just gets better. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Those cooking pots were just generic pots. They were used for all kinds of things, including the collecting of ashes and taking the ashes out of the temple and dumping them outside the temple. They were not particularly holy And he says, those cooking pots will be like the bowls before the altar, the bowls in which the blood was that would be sprinkled on the altar for the cleansing of sin of the nation. In other words, these most ordinary generic pots are also sanctified. In fact, it's not just those pots. They're at least in the temple. Notice verse 21. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. In other words, whatever cooking pot you have in your house, 
It will be sanctified and useful to the Lord. Everything is sanctified. Everything is cleansed. And it gets even better. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. There's been a lot of ink spilled about who these Canaanites were and what is the significance about them not entering into the Lord of hosts. It could be that it's a reference to the fact that Canaanites were known for their trading and that they will not go into the Lord of hosts. They will not go into the temple to worship and to trade and to carry out their their trade and practices. And they will be excluded from that. That's certainly possible. It could be, and I think this is where the text is actually leaning, that they will no longer be identified as Canaanites, but they will be identified as Christ followers. And they will go into the temple, not as Canaanites, to ply their trade as they did before they came to salvation. But they will enter the temple as those who have been redeemed. And what you have in these final two verses is the Lord of hosts who has authority over all things and all people to make them holy. Holiness will dominate his kingdom. What does all this mean? It means that sin is transformed and sin is, sanct- and sin is sanctified. It means that God cleans everything. Have you noticed the extent There will be holiness in the public life. That's the horses and the armies. There will be holiness in the religious life. That's the worship in the temple. And there will be holiness in private life in the home. Says one commentator, the complete spiritual restoration will forever remove every vestige of sin from creation, allowing all to worship God righteously. The prophet's paramount message is that the temple of the Lord will be fully restored and will reflect a holiness never before seen on this earth. It's all clean and useful. Notice this. In that day, every person will be a priest. Exodus 19 tells us that the nation of Israel was designed to be a nation of priests to God the King. And on that day, it will be fulfilled. Revelation 1, verse 6. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And then in chapter 20. Blessed is the Holy One who has the part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And will reign with him for a thousand years. In that day. The cleansing will be such that everyone will be enabled to carry out the role of priest before the king, the Lord of hosts. 
And then notice this as well. There will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. In that day is the final phrase in the book. Twelve times in chapters 13 and 14. And now the very last word that God says through Zechariah to this, to this people is there is coming a day when you will be made holy and you will be safe. They will be safe and we will be safe. There are in a great many communities annual cleanup days. In fact, I think I saw something about that in Granbury uh, a couple of months ago about a particular day that was being designed for cleanup day. You can tell by my vagueness that I didn't participate. Many of you have cleanup days around your house and yard. Regina's been cleaning up from the devastation of a drought summer. And I have some things on my to-do list to help her clean up in the yard as well. I even sometimes clean up my office. Put things away. I brought a box into my office in March filled with books. I finally put it away two weeks ago. I was quite proud of myself. The problem with cleaning is it's rarely complete and it rarely stays. What about Christ's cleansing work? Will he be able to finish the job? The word is promised that he will defeat all enemies and he will make things righteous. Can you trust that promise? Will Christ cleanse everything? Yes, you can. Two times, Jesus gave a preview what he will do on that day when he came the first time. Twice, he cleaned up the temple. Once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of the ministry. Let me read for you the first occurrence. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the tables and he made a scourge of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of money of the money changers and he overturned their tables and to those who were selling the doves he said take away these things stop making my father's house a place of business and his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me And he did exactly on that day what he will do on the future day. He removed unrighteous worshipers from worship, just as he will on that day. And he he, uh, cleansed the temple and made it fit for worship, just as he will on that day. Now the question is, on what basis can Christ do that. I'm glad you asked. The Pharisees asked the same question. Verse 18. Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Who made you king? That's what they're asking. 
Verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed in the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. On what basis could Christ cleanse the temple then because of the cross and the resurrection? On what basis will he be able to cleanse the temple in that day? The cross and the resurrection. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of hosts. You can trust him to cleanse and restore everything sinful. You can trust him.